Welcome to TBA Now. I'm Keith Stern, the rabbi of Temple Beth Avodah. I am blessed to know the many extraordinary people who are connected to our congregational community. This podcast is an opportunity to get to know who they are and what they do. When I want to feel inspired, I think about Janet Naherny, not just because she's so devoted to her family, which she is, not because she's a really good tennis player, because she's that too, and not because she's a fabulously intelligent woman who knows so much about the world and is so smart. Janet Naherny inspires me because she is passionate about tzedakah and gemilut chasadim, the Jewish values of charity and justice. She devotes an enormous amount of her time to the causes of voting rights, ending racism, providing young people from disadvantaged backgrounds the opportunities to succeed. She is truly an optimist, as she would call herself, who believes that she can change the world. And we're very fortunate she's in this world. Give a listen. Jenna Naherney, I am so glad that you are here to talk with me for our TBA Now podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. You have a really terrific story, and I know that uh, so many other people would appreciate uh, hearing it. And I'd like to talk about the good stuff that you do. And I would want to preface that all by asking you to share a little bit about how it is that you and your family ended up at Temple Beth Avodah. All right. Um, we uh, moved to Boston about 20 years ago, and I moved, I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. And when we started looking for a synagogue when our kids were little, I was really looking to replicate something about the experience I had had in Atlanta, where we were members of a synagogue just simply known as the temple. I've always loved the fact that it was just called the temple and everybody knew what that was because- Such an exalted name. <laughs> back in the day, there weren't a lot of choices. So you went to the temple and it was a, a large urban kind of in-town synagogue. So we actually joined uh, Temple Israel in Boston uh, because we thought that was kind of the same idea as the temple. And it honestly, it was a great place to be, but felt a little bit big for us and maybe harder to make community. And uh, James and I remembered that we had gone to a baby naming when we first moved here for one of Dave Cohen's children, and you had done the baby naming ceremony, and we had just thought you were fabulous. And so we called Dave and said, which synagogue is that great rabbi, uh, the rabbi of? And he said, Beth Avoda. So we found our way to Beth Avoda, and we have been delightfully happy ever since. And I am so glad that you made the switch and came over to the little guys, because uh, <laughs> uh, we're really so glad to have you. So the temple, isn't the temple, uh, the famous Driving Miss Daisy uh, temple, is that another place? No, it absolutely is. And not only that, but my the rabbi I grew up with is featured in that movie. And my mom is in some of the scenes. Get out of here. How, how, did, she end up, <laughs> how did she end up being a movie star? She grew up with the playwright for Driving Miss Daisy. His, uh-huh. it, driving Miss Daisy's, Miss Daisy, the, the character modeled after Miss Daisy, uh, was my, one of my grandmother's best friends. Wow, that's amazing! And and when you uh, saw the movie, did you feel like it resonated close to the truth? I guess so. It's it's filmed twenty or thirty years before my time, so it's filmed more in the nineteen fifties, sixties. So that's before my you know 
my consciousness. Um, but yes, very. my mom said it very much felt like it rang true. And did that, uh, did that history of the temple and the bombing and all of that, did, did that play some sort of function in the collective unconscious, uh, unconscious of the, uh, of the congregation? Absolutely. Um, I think we were fiercely proud to be Jewish in a place where being Jewish was not very common. Um, and obviously horrified that somebody would think that it would be appropriate to, to bomb the temple, but that only made everybody that much stronger in their um, identities and in their kind of belief that we had to be who we were and be proud of who we were. Janet, as you think about the the sweep of, of generations from, let's say, from your parents' experience uh, in Atlanta and yours and your kids', your kids experience uh, in the Northeast, how do you think the notion of Jewish identity has evolved? Oh, that's a deep question. I somewhat sadly feel like it's it's not that it's less important for my children, but it's less primal in their identity than it is for me, having grown up in the South. I, all three of my kids are very proudly Jewish, but I don't think it matters as much among their friends, among what they do, the organizations they're involved in, as it felt to me growing up. And is that the curse of successful assimilation? I think partly it's just that there are more Jews around us here, so you don't have to carry the torch. They don't have to carry the torch. And that more people are actually not identifying by religion as a, as much as a, an identifier as it did I was growing up. A story that I like to tell is when I showed up at college, and I went to college uh, at Yale in Connecticut, that the, one of the first people I met, who's now one of my best friends, is from a Long Island. And I was like, oh my gosh, you're Jewish? I am too. Let's go to high holidays together. And he looked at me like I had three heads. He's like, yeah, everyone I know is Jewish. Like, what's the big deal? Uh, uh, so, you know, that's that's just, I was truly that kind of naive that there were places in the world where being Jewish was not unusual. When you uh, went to school, did you have a sense of what you wanted to study? No, I was one of those clearly, clearly undecided. <laughs> uh, I just knew I wanted to go and try a bunch of things and see where it led me. I really thought I might be a math science kid, but then I saw all these pre-med types and I knew I was not going to be pre-med. So then I said, oh, I just, I, they're, they're so competitive. I don't think I want to compete with that. Plus, funny enough, my college, the science building was really far away. So I just didn't <laughs> have to walk that far in the snow. <laughs> I think that's a consideration, especially for a girl from Atlanta. You, you know, exactly. Snow. Exactly. It was all kind of the weather part was a shock to me. The minute it snowed, I thought we would not have school. Of course. Like in, Atlanta, in Atlanta, the entire school shuts down when it snows. We It snows the first day of college. I'm like, oh, great. We can sleep in. And my roommates are like, what do you mean we can sleep in? <laughs> so what point did you settle in on what you wanted to do next? So I decided to study philosophy, which was even a shock to me because I did not like writing papers in high school. And all of a sudden there I was writing papers as my entire college uh, career or major. But I really liked the thought process of it. I liked the, the critical thinking. I liked pulling apart arguments, putting together arguments. And at one point when I was talking with somebody, and I honestly don't remember who about that, they said, you might want to look into law school. And I mm. thought... I've really never thought about 
law school, but you're right. Maybe I should look into law school. So uh, philosophy major ended up in law school. And where did you, where did you study law? I went to Columbia Law School. And while you were in law school, uh, did you figure what direction you wanted to take in the law at, that, at a certain stage? Well, I had worked, so I took a year off in between college and law school and worked on Capitol Hill and had a fabulous, fabulous job. Really loved that work. And I thought I wanted to get back to DC at some point to do something in the government. However, <laughs> that is not where I ended up. <laughs> there are things that get in the way, like boyfriends who turn into husbands who also have career paths and there's negotiating. And uh, I have yet to move back to DC as much as I loved it that first year. While you were studying law, how do you feel that it expanded your consciousness? I think the interesting thing about law is that it truly touches everybody's lives every day. There are just so many different pieces of what we all do, obviously paying taxes and driving the speed limit. Like there, you know, laws touch our lives every day, but also human rights and the choices we make with families. There's so many aspects of the law that are so interesting and so important to people's lives. I worked for a law firm for several years just because I thought that would be a good experience for any budding lawyer. And I did end up working for the government, not in DC, but in Atlanta as a prosecutor. And I had had, had this idea that that was going to be the ultimate justice-seeking position, that I was going to wear the white hat and get the bad guys. And I did it for a few years and I didn't leave it because it was unsatisfying. I left it because we moved to Boston. But once I was able to step back from it, I realized that it actually was not as satisfying as I had liked, that just getting the bad guys is not necessarily solving so many problems. And I would rather be in a place where I was helping solve problems and helping people. When you're getting the bad guys, and it's these were big corporate crimes, I worked in the antitrust division, so it's like price-fixing crimes and bid-ringing crimes. And the, at the end of the day, the victims are the American people people, but nobody's going to come up and say, thank you so much for getting a $50 million settlement against that company that really saved me 37 cents in taxes. <laughs> you know, because nobody really knows, you know, what you're, there's no, there, there's no one victim you're really helping there. And I just wanted to do things where I could use whatever resources I had to actually be helping people rather than just getting the bad guys. Not, and I believe me, I love prosecutors. I think they do a Yeoman's work. It's a great job. I hope the prosecutors working now are all doing their jobs very ably in uh, whatever investigations they're on. But it just, it was not actually as satisfying for me as I had hoped it would be. What happened next? We moved to Boston and I had two, at that point, two kids who were two and six months old. And I took, left the law behind for a while. And um, I had actually worked for one year immediately following law school. I had worked for Judge Mark Wolf, who is a judge in the Boston District Court, still is. And I, I did come back and reconnect with him. Um, that was a fabulous job. Anybody who's a lawyer out there, judicial clerkships are really just one of the most fabulous jobs you'll ever have. Um, you get to see a little bit of everything. I sat at a mafia trial for six weeks, which was just, it was like being in a movie. Um, <laughs> And eventually, I started getting involved in volunteering, mostly in the education field, partly because, you know, when you're a mom with young kids, that's what you're exposed to a lot. So I did some work with Horizons for Homeless Children, which provides uh, free daycare and preschools for homeless children. And I did some work with Facing History and Ourselves, you know, just lots of volunteer opportunities where I could find them. 
your kids got older, did the focus of your volunteering start to change at that point? I think the folk, the real change for the focus in my volunteering was in 2016. And I had always been kind of interested in politics, but I had just been more of an observer, commentator, cocktail party discussions of politics, read about politics in the newspaper. And the 2016 election was the first time, even before the election, the first time that I actually really got involved and started doing some phone banking and thought I would just work a little bit for what I felt was an important election. And I was phone banking for Hillary Clinton. And then when um, Trump got elected, and I just was kind of dumbfounded at what had happened in our country, not so much because of his politics, but because of his persona. And I just was so shocked and really kind of terrified at what that meant for our country that we would elect somebody who, to me, seemed so seemingly unqualified and also just like not a good role model for my children that I decided I would roll up my sleeves and figure out a way to get more involved in um, politics. There's only 3 million uh, NGOs, uh, nonprofit organizations, et cetera. How do you find your way to uh, the things that mattered to you? I, I actually really feel very, very lucky because it was completely just by chance that I found an organization, it's called the Movement Voter Project, um, to work for. But I went to a candidate fundraiser, and I don't love giving money to candidates. As much as I believe in the, what they say and what they're going to do, I feel like it's a very binary proposition. Either they win or they lose, and they're done. I feel like the money that you give them mostly gets spent on TV ads or yard signs, all of which doesn't go towards building any real long-term change. And a lot of candidates end up, win or lose, end up with war chests of, you know, political dollars that they just sit on. So I have never been a huge fan of giving a lot of money to candidates of any party. I did go to a candidate fundraiser for a candidate who was from Dallas, Texas, who was looking to flip a house seat. And somebody there had kind of snuck onto the little table of his literature, had snuck on a flyer for this organization called the Movement Voter Project. And this candidate fundraiser was at this woman's house in Newton. There were 200 people there. There was a chef catering this, the, you know, hors d'oeuvres. And this Movement Voter Project flyer had an, an evening coming up two or three nights later. And I thought it was going to be a, the same kind of event. I was going to walk into some, you know, house and be kind of anonymous. And <laughs> I didn't care about the fancy food, um, but I cared about the anonymity. But I decided to go to see what they were about because the way that the flyer described the organization really appealed to me. And I walked into this guy's house in Brookline and there were like 10 of us <laughs> <laughs> and there were some boxes of pizza and he and his uh, fellow staffer did a little PowerPoint presentation for us. And I was like, where do I sign up? So I imagine you want to know what it is about the Movement Voter Project that was appealing to me. You just read my mind. <laughs> <laughs> Which is that they do not give money to candidates at all. They are all about empowering communities around the country <clears throat> to get their own community members to vote. So skip the politics and let's just figure out how to engage as many people in the political process as possible to educate people, to make sure they know how, where to vote, what voter ID to bring, what issues are important to them, how they connect issues to their daily lives and to who they're voting for. And we particularly focus on communities of color and youth and also particularly focus on key battleground states and districts where 
the voter turnout really can make a difference. I mean, you see that there's states around the country where some elections are swayed, swung by, you know, a couple of thousand votes. What we were mostly doing is trying to offer to people the idea that you can invest your political dollars all over the country and somebody else is making a decision on where they're needed most and what groups need the most through us. We're kind of like a mutual fund. If you want to make sure that as many voters turn out in Texas as possible, well, we support 30 different groups in Texas. We know which groups in Texas need a new computer and need to hire three more people. And we train the groups. We have helped the groups collaborate with each other so that you know that your uh, money is spent the most effectively. Someone who is so committed that does so much I think classically, they're called a professional volunteer. How does that title sit with you? I'm comfortable with that title. And I should probably say that I'm incredibly grateful that because of my husband's job, I did not feel that I needed to work. We moved to Boston when the kids were little. I was able to take some time off. I have flirted with going back into a professional legal job in many different venues and have never found something that really appeals and frankly didn't have the flexibility that I had I had t- kind of created a life you know that I enjoyed that 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 I wanted to can continue with so being yeah. a volunteer first of all does allow a lot of flexibility and I probably at the moment I probably have seven or eight different volunteer gigs to be fair I mean wow. I'm like on the, I'm like chairing one of my reunion committees for my college um you know it's little things and big things but in addition to MVP my other really big one is that I work with an organization called Beacon Academy that takes about 28th graders every year and actually puts them through an entire extra year of school to get them ready to apply to independent schools and get full scholarships and we follow those kids all the way actually through high school and college and I work not only with current eighth graders, but do career counseling with kids at all levels. So whether it's a summer job for a 10th grader or a permanent job for someone graduating from college, we help them with that as well. What a Um, great program. It's super gratifying. I really love, love, love working with it. But the nice thing about being a quote unquote professional volunteer is I do have flexibility. I can say no, um, but I still feel a, a huge sense of responsibility to, you know, contribute my best to these organizations. And I have certainly struggled as someone who went through four years of college and three years of law that I'm not out there being a, you know, quote unquote lawyer or attorney. And I would say the first 10 or 12 years that I was in Boston, even though I was doing a lot of volunteering, I kept thinking I needed to get into the law. And then I think since I have found two organizations that are just really appealing to me and I think I'm able to contribute to them in a way that I feel is not just like writing a check or or hosting a fundraiser that um, I can use my brain and kind of talents and resources in a way that I like to use them. It's really gratifying. Someone who doesn't get involved uh, with professional volunteerism might not fully appreciate that when you say you're going to do something, it's a really serious commitment. And the expectation is high, and particularly in organizations where, you know, you do have staff, but, you know, nothing's going to happen on any significant level without the the sweat and the labor uh, of the volunteers. And so I, I think it's an enormous uh, commitment. It's not one that anyone should ever imagine is taken lightly. And the second thing is that how lucky the organizations are that 
someone who's had the training that you've had and the intellectual integrity that you have to to be involved in the conversation, you know, that you you really bring real content and meaning to to the work. I'm really glad that you're a professional volunteer and what you've managed to uh to accomplish, which is which is really huge. <laughs> Thank you. It's not without struggles that anybody has in their regular job too. Sometimes I have people who work over me who I don't particularly enjoy working with. And sometimes I have deadlines that require me to skip things that I'd like to do. So, um, you know, it does have some flexibility, but it's, you know, I do, I take it seriously. And, you know, almost all the volunteers that I work with take it seriously as well. And, um, you know, you, you make the best of it because you believe in the greater good. And, and I also get the fact that, as you described, that there's the notion of what you quote unquote should be doing and the the vague feeling of guilt or whatever other feelings went along with it early on where what you should be doing and it shouldn't be volunteering and you know you had uh, this really good clerkship and uh, you know promising great things and i think there are a lot of people who are fortunate that you chose to take that integrity and put it into the work that you're doing now thank you i do i think i've finally come around to a place where i feel very gratified by what i do and i've been able to kind of hang up the the hang up of <laughs> not working for pay. What kind of people do you meet who are doing the volunteer work that you're doing? So there's an amazing core of volunteers. There's, there's, a, there's a great staff of about 20 to 30. I think now it may be even a little bit bigger. Um, but there's an amazing core of volunteers in the Boston area alone. We have a group of about 30 volunteers and we work with each other to do communications. And we mostly, as elections get near, throw what we call house parties they actually were originally in people's houses. And we would say, if you'd like to host a house party, we'll bring the presentation and somebody to present. And you invite your friends and we'll just be here to offer this option as a way to create change in the world. Now, all of our house parties are on Zoom. And there are people who say, you can't really call them parties anymore because <laughs> they're on Zoom. But they still sound more fun. So we still call them parties. We have done hundreds of parties, both, you know, probably in people's houses, a few dozen, but, uh, you know, on Zoom, hundreds of parties. And I've not only worked with the 30 volunteers in the Boston area, but uh, volunteers across the country, as well as people who host, like our, our main method is to identify people who are willing to host and invite their networks. And I've just worked with some of the greatest hosts uh, in connecting with them and throwing parties. There's a, a huge political fundraiser in Colorado who I got to know this past season, a gay couple in Chicago who threw a terrific party with people from all over the world. We've done them in Paris. A woman who was the chairperson of Planned Parenthood in California wanted to host a house party for us, and I got to work with her. So I just have gotten to connect with so many interesting, wonderful, like-minded folks, and that's really part of the fun of it. Well, the beauty of 2020, which was horrible for the most part for almost all of us in a lot of ways. But for those of us doing some fundraising and awareness work on Zoom is that people were sitting around with not a whole lot to do mm. and not a whole lot of other ways to get involved other than sending checks to candidates. And so we had a field day, like the lead up to 2020. I mean, granted, there were just a lot of people who wanted to see a different president, but there we, you know, we were able to have events with 150 people attending, which you couldn't really do in someone's house. And we could have them four and five and six nights a week. And we could have two on the same night because different people can run different Zooms. And it just didn't take the same. Um, it just took a lot less manpower to have an event on Zoom than it did to have somebody 
at somebody's house. I should say woman power, by the way, not man power, or person uh, power. <laughs> gender power, anyway. The way uh, so that means that, in fact, uh, what you're suggesting is that given that people were kind of landlocked for a while, that um, their giving profile was enhanced by this kind of isolation. I think it was. And I think the desire to connect with anybody, as I'm sure you know, like people would say, oh, like I've just gotten in touch with an old high school friend I haven't seen in 30 years because there were all these different ways of gathering people on Zoom that we just had not as a society really used before. And we were able to make the most of that. And so we would have alumni parties for colleges that to support our organization. They weren't official, you know, sponsored by the college. But they were a way of bringing people together and people like, sure, I might see a few old friends and I'll learn a little bit about this organization. Sounds great. Um, And oftentimes we we were able to find an alumna or alumnus from that college to come Mm -hmm. and also speak about their role, perhaps in either grassroots organizing or politics or something relevant. So that was great. The midterms was kind of a really interesting uh, result with the various challenges to voting rights uh, in certain key states in the country. How has that worked out in terms of the work you're doing and the extent to which it's made it more difficult uh, or that despite it, um, MVP feels like they were successful in getting people to the polls. Where, where does, where do you, what do you think about that? Where do you stand on that? You could say it's a mixed bag, but I think for the most part, we would say we defied the odds in 2022. And that was kind of the goal. Like the odds were very much against us. Certainly the voter suppression laws and the gerrymandering were all just helped stack the deck that much more. I mean, historically, the party in power in the presidency loses a lot in the midterms. Like that's just the way the trend has gone for, you know, hundreds of years or for certainly the last several decades. So we were expecting to lose, but we lost a lot less than we thought we would lose and in fact gained a seat in the Senate. And I think to some extent, those voter suppression laws actually really got people mad. And they're like, you can't tell me, you can't, you can't put so many barriers up that I'm not going to vote. Like I'm going to figure out my way around them. It also gave our groups a little extra like, oh, we need to keep reaching out to voters because now the ID law might have changed or the polling place uh, might have changed, or the hours might have changed. So there were, it actually gave uh, the groups a little bit more like information to pass along, which just helps make those connections even stronger. So yes, even though on the one hand, changing a polling place might result in losing votes, it also allowed us to kind of stay in connection with the communities that we were working with to kind of make sure they knew that that polling place had changed, which was just another way of strengthening that relationship. As we uh, slowly move to uh, the next uh, major election cycle, do you uh, feel pretty confident in wanting to continue to do the work you're doing in MVP? I do. I actually have just found that I love it. I don't think I fully appreciated the extent to which the laws are really stacked against low-income people, people of color, young people in terms of actually trying to put up barriers to people voting. I remember hearing early on, maybe in 2018, about a law in Texas that required a certain number of parking spots at a polling place. And of course, on its face, that seems like a completely legitimate law. Of course, you want people to be able to park when they go to vote. But college campuses don't need parking spots. 
people can walk around college campuses and vote. So it actually was intended, although not stated, but everyone knew that the underlying intent was to to close some polling places on college campuses, which was going to suppress the youth vote. Because then the nearest polling place, they actually would need a car to drive and and there'd be a parking spot for them, but they didn't have the car to get there. Um, So I just didn't fully appreciate that there are these kind of hidden bombs all over to actually getting, making it easy for people to vote. And I feel like we should really be doing everything we can to make it as easy as possible for people to vote. And in that sense, COVID was actually a blessing because mail-in voting became a very accepted form of voting, which has allowed a lot of people to vote who might not be able to make it to a polling place. When MVP staff gets together with their top volunteers like you, what are their, what are the hopes, what are the apprehensions moving forward to 24? More philosophically than that, I will say that I kind of grew up in a very fairy tale childhood that was lovely. And I really always thought things would work out in the end. So therefore, I don't think I felt like I necessarily had to do something to make sure things would work out in the end. And I think now what I realized is we all have to do what we can to make sure things work out in a way that reflects the values that we have. So that means being aware of what's going on around you, being aware of people beyond your own circles and what's going on in their lives and what can we do to influence that and keeping your foot on the pedal to create change and promote your values. When I started my work at MVP, I was mostly doing like behind the scenes, like helping set up parties, but somebody else would do the presentation. And then at one point somebody said, do you want to try doing a presentation? And I was kind of terrified. I've never really been into public speaking. And at the end of the day, I was like, oh, I actually really love getting up and being able to talk about why this is important to me and why, you know, why it reflects my values and that I really believe in our country and the future of our country. And I want other people to see the the need to to also state their values openly and not just let things happen around them. So that's kind of my personal piece of it. In terms of what's, you know, what are we predicting predicting for 2024? The methodology of MVP is that we're building voters for the long term. We're not we're not trying to get out the vote in 2022 and see you later. We're trying to create communities of voters to to help people understand, register them once, but then connect with them time and time again to see if their local officials, everybody from school board up to president is kind of reflecting their values and what they can do to be a part of an ongoing conversation about the the government and the role it plays in our lives. Any sense of particular places or issues that are going to be focused on what you might end up uh, finding yourself involved with? Well, the Dobbs decision and abortion is, I think that was the biggest thing for me uh, to happen this year. And the fact that we actually lost ground in human rights and that with that decision. And I've terrified that the Supreme Court will continue to chip away at some essential human rights. So I think that's going to be a big issue for all of us. I think it actually also, on the other side of the coin, was a motivating reason that voters got out to vote. We saw it in Kansas when um, everyone was astonished that the Kansas constitutional amendment that was going to create further bans on abortion did not get, did not pass. I think that's, you know, I think at the end of the day, people, people are care about their lives and they want to feel safe in their relationships and in their choices and in their privacy. And I think that's, you know, going to be a motivating factor because I think those issues are very much at the forefront. 
Do you uh, consider yourself an optimist? I'm absolutely an optimist. <laughs> it's not a hard question. In fact, I was in some group at some point where you had to give like one word to describe you and I chose optimist. I I really believe that at the end of the day, people are good. Not every single person, but that, you know, the vast majority of us have a lot of commonality and a lot of compassion and aren't in a zero-sum game, that we're in it for all of us to be better, that we aren't trying to put somebody else down so that we can rise up. So I, you know, I'm a philosophy major and I kind of go back to the, uh, the veil of ignorance, which is this idea that you should really create a world ignorant of what your place in it is. So you should create a world where you're kind of happy being in any position. And, you know, I think that maybe that's what gives me optimism that I think we, you know, the way that, that most of us actually want a world that's better for as many people as possible. You've done a lot of volunteering and in a variety, as you've suggested, a variety of different uh, contexts and degrees of complexity and involvement. And one of the things you've managed to do uh, over the course of the years is find things that scratch the itch, find things that can use your particular talent. Um, for people who are listening today who are wondering, so, God, I would love to feel motivated. Uh, I would love to be inspired by doing volunteer work. There are lots and lots of opportunities out there. What advice would you give for people that are like, uh, I'd like to do something, but I'm not quite sure how to find it? Yeah, it, it can be tricky because when you start out you usually start out with a, an idea of, of a, a kind of problem or an organization, a problem you want to solve in an organization you'd like to help because you like their mission. And that's, I think, should be the first place you start. But then the question is, what can I do for you that's helpful? How much time does it take? How much time do I have? Who will I be working with? Will I actually find it satisfying? So ask the hard questions up front. You know, ask your friends what kind of volunteer work they do. If anybody wants to work for the organizations I mentioned, come to me. I'd be happy to find roles for you. But I think you have to figure out what, what you think will feel gratifying to you and ask the hard questions. And then the only thing I would also say is don't be afraid to, to leave it if you're not satisfied with it, but don't be a quiet quitter. Don't be one of those volunteers who just stops showing up or shows up half the time. To just be upfront with whoever you're working with and say, this is not really the right fit for me. I'm going to go look for something else. Because we've all worked in organizations where some of the volunteers just don't do their part. And then you're always wondering, what's, you know, why didn't I get an email back from them or what's going on there? So just, just be upfront. That's great advice. And, and uh, I really appreciate it. And I'm sure that um, people who are interested will uh, contact us here and we'll, I hope we'll contact you as well. You know, Janet, I've really enjoyed this conversation and I look forward to uh, hearing the ongoing stories about what you're doing to help make this world a truly a better place. And um, God knows uh, we need optimists like you. So, Janet, thank you so, so much for sharing uh, your story and uh, your time. Thank you so much, Rabbi. I loved it. Find all of our episodes on BethAvodah.org or on podcast sites everywhere. Special thanks to our brilliant producer, Amy Tonkanaji, and our intrepid engineer, Mike Kligerman. Mike Kligerman.